Okay, so today we're going to start um, at the beginning, the very beginning. Um, so most of you are probably aware that uh, Genesis has kind of two creation accounts that are back-to-back. -back. The first one kind of tells the, the story of creation of basically everything, and then that's in chapter one, and then chapter two, we kind of zoom in and look you know, more closely at the creation of Adam and Eve in more detail. Um, so um, that's why these are not in order, but they're in chronological order, just not in uh, chapter and verse order. But um, according to Genesis 2.15, the Lord took God, the man, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Um, then in Genesis 1, talking about Adam and Eve, uh, he says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds, of the sky, birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the creatures in this, uh, and all the birds in the, in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. This is the picture of paradise, the garden. This is this is what um, the. Uh, this is the scenario that God intended for, for humankind to live in, right? So um, if, as the previous, in the last couple of weeks we've been talking about, if poverty is a, a series of broken relationships, then I, I just kind of want to talk about that a little bit. So going back to the garden, um, if, if poverty, as, as we're defining it, not materially, but relationally, poverty begins at the fall, right? So the, the videos that we've watched, I, I don't think they really unpack that very much. So I, I was hoping we could talk about it a little bit. So what... They define poverty as broken relationships with God, uh, with self, with others, and with the rest of creation. Um, does that, like, does that make sense to you guys? Like, what? How would you, how would you describe this diagram in relation to? Okay, this is pre-fall. This is after the fall. Like, how would you? Like, what happened after the fall that created broken relationships with God, self, others, and creation? Obviously, uh, with God, where uh, they, a, a block was put between them and God. Uh, mm -hmm. They were cast out of the garden. Uh, from the standpoint of uh, their relationship to themselves, 
they, that also was more or less where the first lies were. Mm -hmm. Well, that's also where shame enters the picture. So they're ashamed, and so they find fig leaves to try and remedy uh, the shame that they feel. Uh, it seems both with each other and with God. Um, any other thoughts? Well, with others, I, you know, they immediately begin <coughs> to blame. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, starting with Adam and Eve, you know, blame or, you know, Adam, Adam blaming Eve and, and, and blaming God and, and Eve blaming the serpent, but then, you know, then with their children, I mean, it just escalated with the um, envy and leading to murder. And mm -hmm. Yeah. The focus moved from God to man. In the garden, the focus was on God. Right. Outside the garden, the focus was on man. Yeah. <coughs> Any other thoughts? I was thinking the, the center is missing the word, and the word is missing is sin, because those were all straight lines until sin entered. Mm -hmm. person. Yeah. I think those squiggly lines are supposed to be Broken. the, yeah. Um, Whereas, like, the person in the middle would be, like, representative of, you know, yourself or whatever. Um, yeah. So imagine if we decided we were going to go on a mission trip. You know, we're planning a mission trip to uh, this, you know, exotic, tropical, you know, location. And it just so happens to be the Garden of Eden before the fall. With a material definition of poverty, which is the idea that poverty is a lack of material things, what would we see when we got there? Huh? No lack. Well, I think we would probably see a lack. No, no clothes. <laughs> Uh, no money. What what's the Wi-Fi password? Uh, <laughs> Possibly I mean, even no housing, depending on the climate. Yeah. You know, they're just living outdoors. Yeah. No but, real food. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No Chick Fil A. No real food. Yeah. Right. No, I'm talking about. Nowhere does it say that you eat animals there. Right. right. So if you eat plants. Yeah. We're all vegans. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's interesting from a from the relational view of poverty, there is no poverty in the garden before the fall, before they're driven from the garden. From a material perspective, we might go there and think, boy, you know, there's a lot that they don't have. Like look at all the things that, you know, Think of all the things we could bring them. Think of all the. <laughs> um, so. But if they don't need it, is it poverty? I mean, if you don't need it, it's not really. If you don't lack it, poverty implies that they lack something. Right. Well, and a lot of times we go into other cultures and assume that True. that people don't have something that they're lacking something, 
and then you know we want to give it to them when really they never lacked it. Um, so yeah, and this extends beyond religion. I mean, I studied anthropology in college, and there are you know only hundreds of examples, certainly dozens of cultures all over the world that when they first made contact with white man were ruined, just mm -hmm. completely ruined. I mean, as bad as our Native American Indians here. Mm -hmm. You know, they, we brought them things they didn't really need mm -hmm. and like disease. caused major problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like disease. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going to watch a short video. Um, this is not the regular video. We'll watch another video after this. But um, this is, it's, it's kind of a silly thing, but just to kind of um, illustrate kind of what we're talking about right now in a slightly different context. Let's see. Is it going to work? Huh? <laughs> oh, what's happening? Uh, oh, there it is. Just look at him. 
They've never seen such nice clothing. We've accomplished so much in just a few days. We helped someone who couldn't get his horseless cart to go. We've taught them better ways to use their unusually small fields. And, as on most of these trips, lots of painting. These guys literally have no idea how to discourage their enemies from attacking. This has been an amazing trip. And look how happy they are. They just love us so much. And just because we are vastly superior to them in every possible way, doesn't mean that we haven't gotten as much as we've given. When we can bless them with the simple things that we take for granted, it just, it makes you feel good. Wow. Thanks for the catapult. <laughs> That was good. Any thoughts? It's it's silly, but no, but does it? (laughs) Um, Of course, they're uh, they're kind of alluding to like short term. How do I? Uh, there we go. Short-term mission trips and that sort of thing. It's actually, it's a part of the same um, When Helping Hearts, the Chalmers Institute, same. Why does this do this? Okay. Um, it, it's for their, they have a, a book on uh, doing effective short-term mission, uh, which I would highly recommend any of you guys like you guys that lead mission trips it's it's a very very good resource um and that that video is from one of their their videos that you watch in your preparation for um before you go on a short-term mission trip um yeah any thoughts though i mean other than it's just silly did it connect in any sort of way did it sound familiar did it (laughs) I know even I, as a long-term missionary, having lived, you know, hopefully I've moved past a lot of these mistakes, but I still probably make some of them. Were you, you look like you might have, yeah, Alan? I mean, I, I guess I, I'm fortunate in that I don't mind. Um, when we're in Guatemala, we are so engaged with the local churches there. Yeah. We have never gone down feeling superior. It's always been as a partner. Right. And because we do everything through the local church, mm-hmm. we're not we're not really the ones running it. We're aiding. And that's that's and the way it needs to be. Yeah. Some in Zambia, there's a yeah, there's an American board for the mission, but there's also a Zambian board. Mm-hmm. And even the medical mission, the, the sites are chosen by the Zambians. The Zambians, uh, so it's a very mm-hmm. much a partnership. Yeah. And perhaps it's because. to teach the gospel to somebody with an abscess. 
Mm -hmm. you know, after the tooth is pulled, now you can teach. Yeah. But then those individuals going back to their villages and starting churches there. So it's um, it's good that you know we we do have works here that don't follow that model mm -hmm. and are engaging with the locals. Yeah. And the natives there. So. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, I've got a few different quotes that I'm just going to kind of put out there before we watch the video, just kind of for you to, to chew on a little bit. So Dambisa Moyo is actually, she's a Zambian economist. Um, her, actually her parents, uh, are friends and colleagues of Umoyo's parents from their time back at the University of Zambia. She's quite a few years older than Umoyo, so Umoyo doesn't know her particularly, but they're kind of family, not maybe really close friends, but you know, from the same university. But Dambisa Moyo wrote a book called Dead Aid. Has anyone heard of that? Um, it's written more from a economic and uh, like, uh, what would you call like government policy sort of perspective but it it has a lot of the same concepts um, and she her her main argument is aid to Africa has done more harm than good because of the way that it's been done she says that aid is or Africa is addicted to aid for the past 60 years it has been fed aid like any addict it needs and depends on its regular fix finding it hard, if not impossible, to contemplate existence in an aidless world. In Africa, the West has found its perfect, perfect client to deal to. So obviously she's using kind of a drug addict kind of analogy there. Um, but that's how she describes the relationship between the West and Africa, you know, coming from a, a Zambian herself. Um, Richard Twiss, um, sadly died a few years ago, but he was a theologian, scholar, and Lakota um, um, Native American. Um, he wrote a book called Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys. Um, that was kind of his, his magnum opus or whatever. Uh, he also wrote another book called One Church, Many Tribes. Um, this quote is actually from One Church, Many Tribes, but Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys had a cooler name and a, a cooler like cover. So that's the one I put on there. He says, Native people in their environment don't generally appreciate white do-gooders, Christian or otherwise, coming to help them. Osage Indians used to say, if you see a white man coming towards you with a gleam in his eye to help you, run like crazy the other way. As often as not, the reason for this reaction is that what motivates a person to help is a sense of either superiority or guilt. The motive is not necessarily to meet the needs of the native, but rather the need of the one coming to do some kind of conscience-salving relief work. Um, and then I wanted to share this. Does anyone know Craig and Jerry Ford? Or Jerry Ford? Does anyone know who that is? Hannah knows? Nobody else? My cousin's twin, so. What? It's my cousin's wife's twin. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Teresa's sister, right? Terry's, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, Terry's. Terry's twin. Yeah, Terry Arms. That's that's her sister. Not the best picture. Um, they were missionaries in Papua New Guinea for years and years uh, with my teammate Danny's brother Marcus. Um, and they have a, a book uh, about short-term missions. They say, but I, I just love this analogy. The tap in your tub is turned on, but the plug is not in place. Water flows excessively down the open drain. What do you do? You turn the water on higher. Or do you turn the water on higher, or do you put a plug in the tub? Most, it seems, would put a plug in the <coughs> tub or turn off the water. In many poor countries, poverty exists because of broken systems. The structure, government, family system, and cultural rules of interaction need to change before any amount of money can help. Pouring money into a broken, broken system makes as much sense as turning the water on high when the plug is out. And uh, that's kind of the same argument that uh, Dembi Samoyo makes about Africa is that we just keep throwing more and more money and you know, this is more she's talking about governments he's talking about um, churches and mission teams and that sort of thing so those are just sort of some thoughts to chew on as we I don't know why this keeps happening why we go into the the video this is the real video no. <laughs> That other one was just for fun. There we go. Not sure where the the problem is. Oh, but now it's. Like this one talking, yeah? And then you give them something, they say, oh, 
accurate man and see that we are so poor, that's why he's giving us. They'll not own that money, they'll misuse that money. They'll, they'll think like they want to sit and expect someone to come and give them things for free. And it lowers the dignity of the people because they are able to work. But when you give them free things, it's like you are lowering their dignity and increasing the poverty level. and development. So we've got a picture here, and you can imagine that this is a, a picture of our person, and this could be a person anywhere in the world, quite frankly. That person is at a particular level of poverty or of poverty alleviation. They're, they're at some level that's kind of their baseline. But then the earthquake hits. A crisis happens. And that person is being plunged downwards into poverty. Relief is the appropriate intervention. Relief is an attempt to stop the bleeding. But once the bleeding has stopped, you then enter into what's called the rehabilitation phase, trying to restore that person in Haiti to where they were before the earthquake hit. Then finally, development is this last phase. It's walking with that person across time in ways that help them to move beyond where they were before. So relief and rehabilitation and development. Now, as I, as I have that diagram up there, I have one concern, and that's this. It is not the case that most poor people that you are working with are coming out of a crisis. It's not the case that every single poor person is going to go through these phases of relief and rehabilitation development. Most people that you're going to work with, uh, either at home and abroad, are actually not coming out of a crisis, they don't need relief or rehabilitation, they're simply at some level, and they need you to walk with them across time in ways that we would call developmental. So that's actually the situation that most people are in with whom you'll be working. The issue of relief, rehabilitation, and development is really answering the question of causality. What caused the person the household, the community, to be in a situation that they're in. Not all poverty is created equal, meaning our approach to helping must first be evaluated. For instance, in the case of global hunger, over one billion people worldwide suffer from this chronic state of living. Yet, in a 1980 study presented by The Hunger Project, only 10% of those facing the issue require relief as a response. Helping a family or community facing the hunger crisis may not only avoid the heart of the problem, but may actually inhibit any future development. One of the key issues in well-meaning people who want to help poor people is that often can end up creating a system of paternalism or act very paternalistically. Paternalism is habitually doing for people and providing for people things that they can do and provide for themselves. Let me come in and kind of do this for you. So our church comes here and we're going to do VBS over there the way it should be done. Or we're going to come build this the way it should be built. And that's detrimental. I think we're missing the understanding that it is a long process. 
we really like solutions that are prepackaged and relatively simple that have worked somewhere and that we can just plug in. And so the idea that I need to be committed to something for a long time and that it's going to be difficult and that I might get kicked in the stomach and I have to be committed to get back up and keep trying um, is what I, I think takes the wind out of the sails for some people. That's why it's easier to do short, quick bursts of, of good deeds. You know, that it's a lot harder to get people to sign on the dotted line for. We see a problem when we treat symptoms, right? And symptoms counteract other symptoms. And this drug reacts with this drug. And we constantly are chasing systems and managing symptoms rather than getting to the core issue of the human condition, which is mine as well as yours. The mission of the church is to preach a holistic gospel. It's just that we come from a background where social and spiritual have been separated. So we are going back to preaching a holistic gospel that will deal with the whole person. school fees at some stage, and therefore when I come to a context like this where they talk, I can't connect. So that's what really pushed me into this type of engagement. And uh, as an economics student, I felt being moved towards development, and therefore I started engaging with communities even before I got out here, because of that passion and that thinking that, hey, life can be better than what we are seeing. As a believer, I kept on wondering at some stage, why is it that somehow the resources, some don't, and all of them are created by the same God? There's a lot of self-esteem which goes back to your connectedness to your creator. So for most of these guys, the first stage we take them through, even in business, is not uh, directly into business training. It's helping them to deal with their hearts and transform back from within. And uh, later on, we, thought, we discovered actually trying to work with people and going directly into businesses that it's not working. Give money to people to start businesses. You come a month later, there's nothing. What they need is just increase their consumption. Then we realized that there was more deeper problem into the heart other than in the hands. So transformation starts in the head, but it has to sink deeply into the heart, and hopefully that heart is transformed into the hands. So that's what really we. Now the key dynamic in development work is promoting an empowering process. The process is what matters. Now this process will typically occur in or result in some products or projects. It might be a well that's being dug. It, it, it might be a house that's being built. But the process that is being used is at least as important as the product or project itself. Development is as much about how you do the work as it is 
about what the work itself is. I'm going to give you kind of a crazy example to illustrate my point. And I recognize it's kind of a weird example, but I'm trying to get some ideas across. I want us to imagine two short-term missions trips. The first short-term missions trip focuses on producing a product, period. And what this short-term team does is it, it, it runs into a, a poor country and it builds three houses and it gives three houses away to the local people and the short-termers get back on the airplane they fly home. And they stand up in church and they say, we went and we built three houses. The focus is on the production of houses. Now think of a different kind of short-term trip that focuses on the process and tries to create an empowering process because the goal isn't just to have the house built. The goal is restoration of relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. The goal is to help people who are suffering from a marred identity for a whole bunch of historical reasons. The goal is to help people who often have a profound sense of shame to understand that they're made in the image of God, to have inherent dignity and worth and capacity. And they're called to be stewards over creation. They're called to try to develop the creation, unfold the creation as God intended. That's the goal. So what this short-term missions team does is they first only go if they're asked to go by the people there. Imagine that one. Now, once they get there, they say to people, what would you like to do? Now, if the people are honest, they're going to say, let's hang out together all week. But they probably aren't going to be able to be honest with you. So we'll get to that later. So they'll, they'll say, well, let, let's build three houses. And what this short-term missions team says, keeping the end in mind of reconciliation, this short-term team says, how do you think we should do it? And the people say, let's try building our houses out of toothpicks. I told you, it's kind of a crazy example. Now this short-term team, the goal for them isn't just the building of houses, it's a process that will result in empowerment. And so this short-term team is a little hesitant to say, Toothpicks seem like a stupid idea. So what they might actually do that week is join hands with the local people working side by side, building houses of toothpicks. Now at the end of the week, a big wind comes through and it wipes out all three houses. You now have toothpick rubble everywhere. And this short-term mission team, it gets back on the airplane, there's, toothpick, there's mounds of toothpick rubble everywhere failed trip, right? But the short-term team notices the village leaders standing around the toothpick rubble and going, man, that didn't work right. Let's try something different. Let's try using bricks next time. Which is a more successful missions trip? If you focus just on delivery of material resource, a house, the first one is. But if you're focused on creating an empowering process that helps people to be restored, to people who are stewarding their communities, who are trying to figure it out, this is a more successful trip. Now, if you're wondering, would you really not tell the toothpicks were a bad idea? I'd tell them. I'd tell them. But the point I'm trying to get at is the deeper point. Focus on the process.
So, any thoughts to start with? He needs to speak to our government. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> You know, we're talking about two totally different kinds of things. One is government aid, mm -hmm. which is extremely large scale. Yeah. Only governments can pull it off. Right. Really involves a lot of corruption, unfortunately. Yeah. And that seems to be what happens mostly in Africa. Yeah. Or there's things like parachurch organizations, like Samaritan's yeah. Purse, or who they have to be fairly large in some way yeah. to pull it off. And and then we've got the short-term mission trips, which are more. For us, for churches, mostly U.S., Mexico, Central America, easier and cheaper to get to, mm -hmm. can do it in a week. You know, Africa, the two-week Africa trip is, is unique in mm -hmm. that way. Um, and they each have their different problems, but it's interesting to see the, the parallels, too. Mm -hmm. So relief, rehabilitation, and development. Um, when I, well, I guess it would have been, what, 2005? Is that when Katrina was? I think so. That sounds right, yeah. Um, I just, a week or so after Hurricane Katrina happened, my parents <coughs> at the time were living in southern Mississippi. And um, so I went back home so that I could work full-time with the church in Picayune. Um, they had thousands of volunteers coming, millions of dollars coming through the church, just all kinds of stuff going on. And at that, you know, in the first few weeks after Katrina, what Southern Mississippi and Louisiana needed was relief, right? I mean, you have, he was talking about the baseline, all of a sudden they're plunged way down to the bottom. Um, Honestly, though, it wasn't that long before, I mean, when you think relief, you're thinking, okay, they need clean drinking water, they need, um, you know, food, they need to basically get back on their feet, food, shelter, there were all these, you know, FEMA trailers, and just, you know, the whole country just, like, came together to, and within, within weeks, the relief efforts had, had basically wrapped up. Then you go to rehabilitation. That's trying to get you back to a similar level to where you were before. Um, and what Brian in the video, the point that he makes is that in most cases you don't have this crisis situation. Most of the people that we're working with are not coming out of a huge crisis. They may be at a lower level materially than what we're used to. It, that might be a crisis for us if we found ourselves in their shoes. <laughs> but, um, you know, so he takes out the, the red and the orange things and just goes straight to development. Um, and I think a lot of times the mistake we make is we see material poverty um, or a material lack of things 
that's not necessary. Like that's just the baseline. That's what people live at. That's where they're comfortable. They, you know, they there's not a crisis going on, but our reaction is often the same as if it's a crisis, and you know. So then we uh, take up collections, you know, to give, you know, food or clothes or you know whatever it might be. Um, and when really what we need to be doing is like, like he says, focusing on the process more than the, um, the, the product. That's right. Any thoughts? Basically, don't you just have to kind of focus in on what the root cause of the poverty is? I mean, is it education? Is it lack of, um, jobs uh, is it bad people in the government taking away all the resources and yeah. nothing for the people i mean to me and and those are really large problems that right. i'm not really sure and that's craig and jerry ford and their their comment about the the tub with the drain you know until you plug the drain you figure out what the the source where is the water going like why is you know this poverty here at such a alarming uh, level. Uh, yeah, it it might be jobs. It might be, um, you know, a lot of times it's just the fact that people don't own the land where they live, so they have no collateral. They can never get money from the bank. They can, you know, it's just it can be any number of things, um, and so. Yeah, the, but I think a lot of times the only way to really figure out what it is is to walk with them, to spend time listening to them. Giving them a handout is not necessarily going to be very, I mean, it's funny because especially the, the more conservative among us, you know, the Republicans, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll very quickly say that about you know, welfare and, um, you know, welfare, welfare programs and things like that. But then somehow when we go to Africa or to Central America, we have a change of attitude. I don't know where that comes from. Um, the network did a comparative analysis with New Orleans and with Houston. Mm -hmm. And the difference today between the two, in New Orleans they still have houses that aren't lived in, have mold yeah. in them, mm -hmm. and so forth, and yet Houston is, is fully recovered. Yeah. Uh, and their, their question was, what's the difference? And what they did come a roundabout way, they came about and said it's a matter of attitude. Mm -hmm. And then you can also look at Puerto Rico, the same thing. Of course, government, their government got into that. Yeah. Um, and, and but but you're right. You, uh, Fran's right. You got to you got to do an assessment on just what is the problem first, mm -hmm. before you can you can set a process together that will help them. Yeah. And we're we're just ready to throw money at, at at everything. Yeah, and that's why things like like you guys going to Zambia, you know, on a regular basis, you know, over time, walking with the people there, working with the people there, you know. 
you probably have a perception that's very different from the first time you went, I would assume, or Guatemala. You know, you, you, you go to a place and you see poverty. When we see poverty, we, we usually see it through our own lens. And um, what looks like poverty to us may just actually just be normal. Well, and sometimes, especially in the, not so much in the ongoing relationship building that we do in Zambia or Guatemala or in Mexico, but just looking at this, if they don't really have a crisis, but we see them as poor from our perspective, then our attempt at giving them aid can create the crisis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's how it's given. Right. The, I mean, just, yes, when, when there's a crisis and you, you take food, you take, you know, whatever it might be into a situation, like, that, that's exactly what people need. But when there's not a crisis and all of a sudden you start bringing things in, then what happens a lot of times is you put people out of business who make a living selling like mosquito nets. Uh, Dambisa Moyo uses an example in, in Dead Aid about you know a big government, U.S. government program to provide mosquito nets all across Africa. Well, mosquito nets already existed, um, and there were people who sold them and you know fed their families by providing mosquito nets. And when somebody saves up their money, when they see the need for a mosquito net, they save up their money, they buy one, then they actually use it. When all of a sudden you just flood the continent with millions of mosquito nets, most of them ended up being used as fishing nets. And <laughs> because until you see the value of something, until you... so. In, in her opinion, the, basically what that did was it just put a lot of people out of business and created more problems than, than it was intended to, um, yeah. That's similar to what I saw with the fire that burned about up here. Yeah. Near where the prisoners live. Mm-hmm. So everybody just rushed around trying to help out. We opened our building. The Church of Christ Disaster Relief truck came from down south and, and <coughs> loaded wheelbarrows and brooms and all that kind of stuff. Well, the people who lived in the houses had insurance. Yeah. And all and they and they they were all taken care of. The people who showed up to get those things when I loaded the truck or the, into their cars and stuff, mm-hmm. they were the poor homeless people, not because of a fire, but because they were chose to be homeless, and they're the ones that took all the aid. Yeah. Nothing about the fire. So yeah. All went to the wrong place. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what was? Oh, in Namibia, a few years ago, there was a program of um, a, a government Namibian government program saying, "Okay, we're going to build you know drop toilets in all of these villages up in the north." And they spent millions of dollars putting in thousands of drop toilets that um, never got used. (laughs) 
and like they're squeaky clean <laughs> because they put them in communities that thought they, they live in very remote rural areas and they're like why in the world would I want to go in the same place that someone else just went you know <laughs> so it's you kind of have to we you have to do your research sometimes and the Namibian government didn't it was actually a joint it was the Namibian government and um, what's it called the what's that American thing that all the volunteers go the Peace Corps yeah the Peace Corps and the Namibian government did that together and um, kind of a disappointing outcome and, and uh, you, you bring this up and, I, and, and what strikes me is something to remember and in, in missions done well is uh, is our uh, the missions we have currently the that uh, with the Dunhams that we're supporting in uh, in Guatemala they're there with the people mm -hmm. they know what the people need mm -hmm. uh, they the churches ask for the help but I think equally it's important they'll set up a clinic and the people come in for the to the clinics, and they're required to pay for their for the medicines because mm -hmm. they found out that if they just give them the medicines, yep. they won't use them. Yeah. But if they paid for them, mm -hmm. then they have a vested interest, you might say, yeah, in using the drugs. Right. That's that's one thing that Umoyo has just she's learned. She will not see anyone for free, like. She might take a chicken, but, you know, or a couple eggs, but, you know, unless, if, if you see someone for free as a doctor, you know, her experience is that the people that she's seen for free don't value her, whether it's her counsel or her um, services. services, and so... Somebody had a hand up, yeah? I'm guilty of, uh, if I'm around someone that has less than I do, I don't let them pay for anything. And, and I think that's bad. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I'm guilty of all this stuff that you've been talking about. But I, did, I do know of a lady that would go out to eat with other ladies from church. Mm -hmm. and, and she had less than they did. And so they always made sure that they paid for her lunch. Mm -hmm. She said, if you ladies don't stop paying for my lunch, I'm not going to go with you anymore. Yeah. It's a dignity thing. Yeah. It's, it, it's degrading. Yeah. I mean, even, even if you just say, you know, hey, give us, you know, just add $5 to the, you know, to the bill and we'll take care of the rest or something, you know. Just doing something to allow the person to have the dignity of yeah. contributing something is very important. Yeah, and again, going back to you know, governments and large NGOs, they have the money and the people to throw at a problem, and mm -hmm. whether that problem really exists or not. Right. And you know, either do really good work or waste a lot of money and time. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the hope for us is that when we go on these smaller trips where we are more invested and we go over and over again, that we don't make those kinds of mistakes at least very frequently. 
Yeah. You know, it's like in Cozumel. So we, we have a campus that we are trying to build out, trying to get more children, eventually can hold 80 people under the current plan. So there's building to be done, there's construction, there's maintenance, you know, there's clearing the jungle, all that kind of stuff like you expect on a short-term mission trip. But that's all during the day. So in the evening, our focus is to try and do devotionals and have fun with the kids and, and build those relationships. In fact, that's the number one goal in kind of the handbook that we get is this is about relationship. Mm -hmm. If you do nothing else, that's what you focus on. Mm -hmm. Do the other things as you can, but right. focus on that. Yeah. Did you, you look like, no? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Mike, you're the, the rookie elder in here. Would you mind <laughs> closing us with a prayer? Sure. Father, we thank you for all our blessings. Uh, I want to thank you for the, really the time and the freedom that we have to come here tonight and learn about situations like this and learn from others' mistakes, perhaps our own too, um, so that as we go forward and we do what we can to uh, spread your word and to rebuild those relationships that are the cause of, of so many of the problems of the world um, that we do a better job and I just want to thank you for Nathan and his time here and all the weeks that he's going to be teaching us pray for his family as they're separated and we hope that that process continues and then, you know, resolves itself quickly I want to thank you for everybody here tonight all those who were able to come and those who weren't able to come um, be with this church Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.